We see the corruption play out in the Trump administration every day. We see the breaking of norms, but also what many have said are crimes committed by Donald Trump and people in this administration that warrant investigation. And the big question has been how will that happen? What should happen? How should the Biden administration investigate the Trump administration? How should the Justice Department go uh, about that? James Fallows wrote all about it in The Atlantic. He is a staff writer at The Atlantic and someone who has a long uh, history uh, serving government and writing about politics. He's written for The Atlantic since the late 1970s, reported extensively from outside the United States, around the United States, once worked as President Jimmy Carter's chief speechwriter, and joined me to talk about a piece he wrote uh, this week all about how Biden should investigate Trump. Uh, James Fallows, welcome back to the program. It's been quite a while. Uh, Thanks so much. Glad to speak with you again. So you outlined um, various ways that um, the Biden administration could investigate um, the previous administration. Uh, The departing president has engaged in personal corruption, denied, uh, you know, the very um, ways that we go about uh, a presidency uh, in breaking all the norms, uh, defied the Constitution, mismanaged the federal government. And you spoke with historians, lawyers, veterans of Republican and Democratic administrations about how to balance investigations with moving forward, because there's, there's that impulse of moving forward. Tell us more about those two impulses that you see go back and forth uh, and, and how to delegate the tasks. So, so thanks. And as you said, over the past couple of months during the whole election froth, I've been trying to speak with people who had been through this process before, or who had studied it. You know, there's never been anything just like this process because there's never been a past president with anything like the record of Donald Trump's. But there's people who, who know what it's like to try to balance reckoning with the past and focusing on the future. And the one sort of um, prelude point that everybody made, and I remember from my own time long ago working from Jimmy Carter, is that when a new president takes office, there is just this enormous onrush of the stuff a normal president has to do, again, accepting the last few years. And that's going to be all the more so uh, with the Biden-Harris administration, where they have the economic catastrophe and the pandemic itself and international relations and all the rest. So there's a very, very rigorous triage exercise you have to apply. What are the things that you have to do that are necessary for um, you know, historical reckoning and all the rest versus things that you probably shouldn't do because they will keep you from doing other things higher up in the list. And on the basis of that exercise, I came up with sort of several tiers of what the triage would lead to. Would you like to hear me give those tiers? Absolutely. <laughs> so the first tier would be things you think of as straight out corruption, the emoluments clause, 
uh, extra money going to members of the family. You know, I, I mentioned in the piece some of the chronicles, which go into the thousands of items of things that would have been seen as violations of financial laws or the Hatch Act or whatever else. And the the, the judgment on these corruption issues is that most of them you leave to the states because largely this will be a matter of state law, especially in New mm-hmm. York and other jurisdictions too. And the ones that involve federal law, let's say, for example, whether the U.S. Postal Service was deliberately tampered with in some way over the past few months. For the federal law, that's where you make sure you have a good, eminent, upstanding attorney general. And that person will make sure that the departments are equipped with inspectors general, and then you let that process uh, work. Somebody I I was uh, quoting in a piece said that for the rest of his life, Donald Trump personally is likely to be involved with the legal process and prosecutions and lawsuits. And that's his problem, but it shouldn't be Biden's. So that's tier number one. Biden lets the process work, both at the state level and with inspectors general and an attorney general for for corruption issues. Ready for tier number two? Yes. (laughs) Okay. Tier number two is what you think of as corrosion issues, where the functioning part of the government has been either intentionally or through negligence eroded. Um, We see that in public health in the last uh, eight months, of course, for the disaster of the pandemic, with the scientific services, with the State Department, with the weather um, weather agencies, with all the other, other things which keep the government going. Uh, that's something where, by contrast, the people I spoke with said a new president can deal with that um, directly and immediately. There are about 4,000 political appointments a president has at his or her disposal but only about 1,000 of them require Senate approval, the Mitch McConnell gauntlet or whatever the Senate looks like. And the other 3,000 are people that a president can put in place right away. And so there was a big emphasis on trying to sort of rebuild the cadre of federal service, of having young people think again as they did you know, under John F. Kennedy, this was a worthwhile cause, of having mid-career people come in uh, in, in various ways, of just giving some sense that the, the, the character of federal service matters, especially in all these expert agencies. So that is the corrosion front. And then we have the third tier, which was three big areas where you'd want to have national commissions investigate them. And I'll pause for a second, (laughs) and you can ask me why commissions (laughs) matter. (laughs) Well, yes, because, you know, a lot of people hear commission and they worry that something's being kicked down the curb or, you know, not not really going to be dealt with. I mean, there are commissions and there are commissions, I guess. Uh, yes. And so I, I originally, I had in an earlier version <laughs> of this piece, a line that was cut just saying, you know, commissions, the very word makes the heart sink because it does sound <laughs> right. like just the, you're going to have this blue ribbon, 10,000 page um, report. But it it actually is impressive when you go back to it how often in American history um, these commissions have been effective tools for for nudging national attention and the national uh, debate in a certain direction. Um, Back at the dawn of time when I was in college in 1960s, the Kerner Commission had this, this prescient report 
about racial um, injustice and segregation in, in the cities. And it didn't obviously lead to the end of American racial injustice, but it, but it was an important uh, marker. The Space Shuttle Commission uh, was was right. uh, very um, was significant in in many ways after the explosion in the 1980s. The 9/11 Commission did a uh, a, a, a and a surprisingly impressive job. And so if you consider the other avenues for public discussion now, you know, cable TV, a congressional hearing, et cetera, most of them have become so corrupted that if you could have commissions, especially that weren't directly run by the federal government, as some of these in the past have not been, you know, are approved by the federal government, but have are sort of run by universities or foundations or whatever, they've had the, the potential in the past to uh, t- to be more effective than some other venues, and there were uh, there were three places where I said I, I thought we needed big time commissions. Right, you looked at uh, the pandemic uh, and how Trump has handled that, how the administration has handled it, um, and also the children separated uh, at the border and, and the horrific human rights abuses we've seen. Uh, as well as uh, attacks on democracy itself, uh, which have been sort of uh, across the board uh, and and have led to violence and domestic terrorism. Yes, and, and I think in each one of these areas, one reason a reason why I ended up hearing from various officials and and being convinced myself that these were worth special treatment is there is leverage in each of them with the pandemic. Not simply is this the greatest failure of governance in U.S. history, I would argue. The Vietnam War was a decade-long disaster, but it was not it was not as sort of comprehensive a failure of governance as this has been. So there's there's both what happened, but also there is the certainty that new viruses from new parts of the world with new disruptions mm-hmm. of the natural landscape are, are going to emerge. And so finding ways to say, we have been through this, it's been devastating, what have we learned, and how can this not happen to us again? I think that's the, the crucial leverage on the, on the pandemic commission. For the, the, the border, I think there, there are two inter, intersecting um, points there. And, and also, you know, I quote... John Allen, a former four-star, retired four-star Marine Corps general, who now heads Brookings, is saying that this is something where the rest of the world now views us as being sort of a state sponsor of child abuse and of, mm-hmm. of cruelty to, to children. So knowing what happened to these 600-plus children and understanding how this fundamental part of America's place in the world, um, immigration, how we are going to manage that going forward. I think that is crucial there. And then we have the structure of democracy, where there's the opportunity for some kind of look at voting systems and voter suppression and 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 um, white supremacist violence and violence of all sorts. And so I think there are ways in which each of these can be um, it lends itself to the kind of commission report that has worked in the past. Uh, and I, I suppose it would be uh, within the recommendations and the, um, uh, you know, determination of the commissions, 
But this question is something I'm thinking about, uh, and, and obviously people have been thinking about. Um, Americans have learned, many of us have learned, that might not have thought about it before, how much of our democracy is dependent on uh, good actors and just norms, <laughs> presidents following norms, and also knowing that, hey, if I did this, I might get pushback from even my own party. And, you know, that's all sort of out the window. And we clearly need definitive uh, laws in many areas that prevent the president from abusing power and others from abusing power. Uh, and, and, and that's what I'm thinking about. Is it up to this administration to, to work on that? This new well, administration. Know, th- th- thanks for asking that. I actually had a. This is. <laughs> I have the phantom limb pain for this article <laughs> when you mentioned <laughs> that because that's a part that was in there at one point, and we decided for length and other reasons not to include a discussion of what a new president can do about n- norms. I asked a number of people there about this question, historians and others. And the general view was that norms almost by nef- definition are things you can't codify. You need to to demonstrate them. And so one of the demonstrations would be the comportment of a new administration, the kinds of people it appoints, um, the kinds of laws or the kinds of standards it insists on. You know, you mentioned that I worked for Jimmy Carter back at the, uh, you know, in the prehistoric era, and he <laughs> sold famously sold his peanut farm or put it in a blind trust, and you had to report any sort of outside income of more than about $10 you got from anything as a member of the White House staff. So, so there's the exemplifying of standards, but also I think in this third commission I was mentioning on the structure of democracy, there are a number of people who have specific ideas in mind of how you would enforce given that you can't legislate you can't legislate morality there are times when you have to pass laws and I, I mentioned briefly a new report by the American Academy of Arts and Sciences which has about 50 of these specific recommendations of ways that you limit you reduce gerrymandering at the state level uh, the ways you have uh, life terms or fixed uh, sorry fixed terms for member of the Supreme Court etc cetera, etc cetera, things that you could practically do that would restore some kind of norms to American operation? This is more a political uh, question and, and about your your thoughts on uh, Joe Biden and, and how he is um, speaking and how he has uh, spoken. How much of this do you really think will be tackled? Uh, how much uh, will we see uh, this administration go about uh, doing some of these very important things to bring, um, you know, to justice the previous administration. Because, you know, we, we saw President Obama before being elected say we would be investigating the Bush mm-hmm. administration, and then it didn't happen. That is another excellent question I've thought about a lot. In retrospect, the two main things the Obama administration did not uh, investigate and consciously decided not to investigate one was the whole Iraq war and the associated torture and everything else, both in the origins of the Iraq war and the execution of the Iraq war. And I believe there was a decision by Obama that, that in a way, his victory over Hillary Clinton in the primaries 
had been sort of a referendum on that. He had, had opposed the Iraq war. She had supported it. And so this this I think there was that was Obama's famous let's look forward, not back decision. Um, right. I'll, I'll just say that that was one of his choices. The other was not to put people in jail in the financial industry. And the decision in real time then was, uh, what is the way to minimize the financial damage to the country as a whole? And the judgment by the people in authority then, I think, mistaken, was that you it was more important to get people in the boat moving forward than to spend time um, uh, punishing them. I think that was a mistake. I think there should have been accountability for the financial excesses of that time. But what I think is significant is that Biden lived through that. And while his nature is like Obama's, that being a sort of a centrist and a look forward rather than backward guy, I think that his whole team has that experience of two great reckonings that were not reckoned and how it matters to to have some way of including the national story of how close we have come to real disaster. And we've had, of course, a public health disaster, but to a real democratic disaster. So I think they will spend more time on these reckonings than Obama did. Well, you really did such a, a comprehensive um, job of speaking to so many different people and, and getting their thoughts and comments uh, that really, I think, provides uh, a good a good blueprint, uh, certainly, uh, for those who will be uh, looking into these issues. And uh, people should read it uh, on the Atlantic's website. I, thanks so much for coming on the program today. Thanks so much for, for letting me talk about all these things and for what you do. Thank you. Uh, James Fallows is a staff writer at The Atlantic. Please read his article on The Atlantic's website and follow him on Twitter at James Fallows. We're back in a couple of minutes. You're listening to The Michelangelo Signorelli Show on Sirius XM. 